Romans 15. I just realized the other day as I was studying that we're really close to the end of Romans. So we'll have gone through Mark, Acts, and Romans. And Kelly said, well, where are we going to go next? And I said, I think we'll go to 1 Corinthians. You know, uh, we're just going to keep going. And I think we're going to just do the whole New Testament unless God says stop it. You know, I, I can't see anything wrong with us just going straight through. And it's really, when I first started going to church, eight, almost nine years ago now, we were actually studying the book of Romans. And it was the constant step-by-step, verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter that has changed my life and has made me realize how much I need Jesus. And so um, how can I not give to you guys that which God did for me through someone else? And so I think it's very important. And you know, I know I say this over and over again, but it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And so as God's blessed us with his word, I want to know every word of it. And even if you guys, um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I need to be in it daily. And so uh, teaching an entire book, all the verses, all those things, it's good for me. And you can ask my wife, you know, I'm growing, you know. Uh, may not be as much as I need to sometimes, but the Lord is growing me. And if there's anything I found that any time God has me teaching a passage, He wants me to learn it, uh, either before the week of or the week after. And and there's so much application. You know, it goes way deeper than what I'm going to share with you this morning. But for time's sake, I probably won't get to hit all the points. And so remember that Sunday mornings are the smorgasbord, and the rest of the week you get to nibble and eat along the way. It's the daily bread. It's the manna from heaven that God drops in your laps. So that being said, we're in Romans chapter 15 this morning. And as we find ourselves there, I want to remind you that the theme of this part portion of Romans actually has to do with uh, presenting our bodies and delivering our bodies up to the Lord to be a service of ministry to Him. He says in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, I beseech you, therefore brethren, by the mercies of God, in the light of all that God has done, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He doesn't say you need to make a sacrifice of animals anymore. We, don't, we no longer have to do that. Jesus is our sacrifice. But in a responsive worship, what they would do is they would bring an animal or grain or something to offer up before the Lord. Well, the Lord says, I, I don't want sacrifice. I want you. And so in light of all that Jesus has done for you, What does he desire of your life? He desires you. He says, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You don't, you know, I don't want you to give your life and not stop being who you are. I want you to be who you are in me. He says, I don't want just a living sacrifice, but I want a holy and acceptable sacrifice. That's the hard part, right? So what do I do in order to be a holy and acceptable sacrifice? Well, that's what we've been studying. In chapter 13, he talks about how we are to submit or not to submit to the government. And in the second part of chapter 13, he says, you know, put on Christ, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's a tough one. But he says, if, if you want to be perfected, if you want to be holy, let God turn up the heat in these areas of your life and he will make you whole. Sometimes we think of holy and we think of this church that's sitting up on the hill all made out of all these ornate rocks and the, the ornate furniture and the just the right carpet and the stained glass. And it's beautiful, don't get me wrong. But holiness, the word has become kind of a, a stale word, a snooty word almost. But the word holy just means whole, W-H-O-L. To be complete, to be made 
Perfect doesn't mean to be literally perfect, but it means to be made whole. And if there's anything that people that you and I are surrounded with and that we struggle with, it's wholeness. We always feel like we need something else. We're not able to be content in this or that. And the Lord's always saying, you're going to find your contentment, your perfection, your wholeness in who I am and what I've already done. And then as you rest in that, you will then experience what it feels like to be whole because He is whole and He's making you whole. And so in Romans chapter 13, those were the two passages. And then in Romans 12, he even said, serve God with your spiritual gifts. The ways that he's gifted each and every believer, he wants you to minister in those gifts, to to use them, not just for your own gain, but for the good of the body of Christ. And then the last part of chapter 12, he says, behave like a Christian. Let your love be perfected as you practice it daily. As you find out how weak it is, let the Lord then strengthen it and build it back up and make it what his love is. And then in chapter 14, he talked about living in the law of liberty, living amongst one another as Christians. All the other things were towards outsiders. I want you to live towards one another with the law of liberty. Christ has died and been risen for you and you're free to worship him. You're free to serve him. And you're free to live out your life as you've been called. But don't let your freedoms or your, um, your ability to do whatever you want in Christ, don't let it stomp on the, the weaknesses of others. You've been freed in Christ, but don't let your freedoms be something that will cause someone else to stumble or to be, to, to be in sin. And so practice liberty, but also practice love. And if the thing that we talked about last week was how in our country... We, are, we, we will tell people all day long about, I have my rights to do this or that. But if my rights infringe upon someone else's rights, they're no longer rights. They're sin for the Christian. And so we understand that in Christ, we have had all of what we've sinned in the past and all the, our sins that we presently struggle with. Jesus has finished it on the cross. It's all forgiven. But then he says, now walk in love. If you have a freedom and you know that you can walk in it, and someone else might be stumbled by it, don't practice that freedom around them because you might hurt their walk with Christ. You might give them license to sin and not even realize it. So be sensitive to one another. I, I find it interesting that Paul spent uh, verse 8 through 14 in Romans 13, he spent that on loving your neighbor, but then he spends chapter 14 all the way through chapter 13 in verse, excuse me, chapter 14, all of it, through chapter 15, verse 13, talking about how we are to dwell with one another as believers. I find that interesting because he spends way more time talking about how we're supposed to interact with one another. And that's because if we don't interact properly with one another, we can cause division. We can, instead of building one another up, we can tear each other down with just words, with just actions. And we are around each other more than we are around outsiders And so it's more likely for us to cause each other to stumble. And so Paul gives lots of instruction. Here's how you ought to live amongst one another. And you know in your own households, the people that you've lived with or are still living with, that it's way harder to love them many times than it is to love those who are outside that you just see once in a while in doses. You know, the people you live with, you don't get in doses. You get the full thing. And sometimes you're just like, I can't stand whoever. And it might be your own spouse, it might be your parents, 
It might be your kids. But the reality is, in the body of Christ, Jesus has given us instruction on how to interact with one another because he knows it's hard. You know, if anybody can relate with the hardness of dwelling amongst people that have misunderstandings and don't take the time to listen in harder rather than just mowing over these relationships and walking away, which is always easier, at least for the short term, the Lord says, I want to redeem your relationships. And who better to understand than the guy who was preaching peace to the world and they go to Samaria and these men are talking to Jesus and, you know, and John and I think it was John and James walked up. He called them the sons of thunder. He says, hey, these guys aren't doing what you said. Do you want us to smoke them with lightning and call down fire on them like Elijah did? He said, no, no, I don't. I came, I came to redeem these things. I came to deal with it. We're not just going to smoke them and be done. I came to love them and not just the lovable. And so Paul instructs us today in Romans 15. In chapter 15, verse 1. He continues on the passage from last week, but he continues kind of summing up what, he, what we learned last week in Romans 14. He says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a scholar. So I had to look up scruples. I've heard of the board game, and I've heard that it's kind of like a strategy thing, but I looked up the word that they have here for scruples, and it actually means infirmity. Or weakness. Bearing with the scruples or the ideas of the weaker brother. And now remember, when he's talking about somebody that's weak, and many in last week's chapter, he was talking about those who were kind of legalistic. You know, they, they didn't see that they had all these freedoms in Christ, and so they weren't eating certain foods. They abstained from them, thinking that it made them more holy. They only worshiped on certain days. They're like, hey, you can't worship on Thursday. It's got to be Wednesday or Sunday. You know, and so they were like, Hey, bear with them. They love the Lord. They got some misunderstandings, but love them. Bear with them. Now, when I think of bearing something, I think of like putting up with them. But when, in context of the gospel, when Jesus bore our sins, he didn't just like put up with us. He carried them himself. He carried our weaknesses. He carried our scruples, our infirmities. Think of an infirmary. You know, we don't have those anymore. We have hospitals. You know, it sounds a lot better. But an infirmary implies that if you're there, you're weak and you're sick and you need help. And that's what the church is. It's a, it's a hospital for the hurting. It's a place where those who are weak can come and be loved on and encouraged. And that's what we want to provide here. And so he says, when We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. When you're bearing with someone else, that means you kind of have to lay aside your own feelings sometimes. And I, of all people, can express to you, I don't like doing that. I like me. I have a hard time giving up me. And so the Lord says, bear with one another, bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. And what you'll find is if you'll bear with people, and you'll deal with them, you'll find out, number one, you've got some weaknesses that people are bearing with you on. And number two, that Jesus loves you so much more than you first realized because he's born with your weaknesses. And so you can identify with Christ and how he loves, not conditionally. Verse 2, he says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Let each of us please his neighbor. Not for our own good, still is, is what he's saying, but in order for his good. To love them for their good. And he says, leading to edification. Another word, I had no idea what it meant. 
So I looked it up. And as I looked at the Greek word, I couldn't say it, so I'll tell you what it means. It means, um, edification means to strengthen or build up. So if we are to love those who have weaknesses, Jesus is telling us through the pen of Paul here, to love those who have weaknesses, you're doing that in order that they would be strengthened. If you've got an old building that's got big, huge pillars in the front and they're all weakened because they've worn out over time, you need to bear those loads, crank up the front awning for a time, and then put new pillars in. You need to rebuild the foundation. The foundation is still there, but the, the pillars and the structure around that that are built on that foundation sometimes get weak. They rot. There's you know problems with it. You look at an old car that's got rust in it. Sometimes you've got to remove a panel and put in a new one. It strengthens the integrity of the entire body of that car. And so in the same way, the body of Christ is full of weak individuals that are being built up a holy inhabitants for the Lord. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, each one of us individually, but then as a group. So picture a block building that's got a bunch of chunks missing. The Lord says, hey, if those chunks are missing, you have to carry more weight. But if you encourage the other chunks and you, you, you order new blocks and you put them in, what happens is the whole body carries less load and is strengthened. And then the body of Christ becomes all that it was ever meant to be. And so our purpose is not so much just to come to the body of Christ to see what we can get, but also to seek that which we can build up other people with. And so Paul writes here, he says, for even Christ, see he doesn't say, because I am. Paul doesn't say, bear with the weak because I do it. He says, even Christ, our Lord, our King, our Savior, he's done this. He's laid out this example that we are to follow. He says, for even Christ, verse 3, did not please himself. He didn't serve himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And he's quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9, which is a messianic psalm. He's saying, look at Jesus, our, our example. He, Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 45, I believe, says this. It says, for... And he was talking to his disciples. He said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus came to bear with us the reproaches that were towards his Father he bore in order to build us up. You know, because here's the deal. The Lord sent Jesus, his Son, his representative, God in the flesh, to express to us the heart of God. If you want to know what God's heart is towards something, read the gospel accounts. Jesus spoke on each and everything that you and I struggle with. But the problem is, is when the truth is spoken, many times it's not received. You know, imagine this. You open up your trash can to throw the trash in it, and there's an animal in there that's been digging in there. Raccoon, opossum. I had that happen to me one time. Open it up. The thing had somehow gotten in there and closed the lid. I open it up. First thing in the morning, shine my flashlight in there. There was a possum there. Did that possum go, hey, how's it going? No, it went, <laughs> you know, it bared its teeth at me. And where you share the truth of God with people that are in darkness, they don't think anybody knows what's going on. But when you shine the light of the gospel in there, they go, <laughs> because the truth hurts. Now, we are not to be brutal with the truth and beat people down. In the spirit of meekness, we need to approach them, recognizing that when we received the truth the first time, it wasn't that helpful. It, wasn't, it was helpful, but it was hurtful. 
You know, salt in a wound hurts someone, but when that salt is there, it purifies that wound, takes out all the impurities. And so we are to be careful with those. But Jesus, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's speaking there through the pen of David prophetically, and that's what happened. The reproaches are insults. I had to look that one up too. I'm finding out I know very few words, and I use them all the time, but reproaches just means insults. He bore insults of those that hated him. And so in verse 4 he says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now who in here wants hope? I want hope. I mean, it's, it's, it's what gets me through. You know, the light at the end of the tunnel. Is this thing going to go forever? No, I have hope. But what's your hope in? Well, if your hope is in circumstances or somebody responding to you the right way, your hope is not going to be very comforting because it's going to fail you. Romans chapter 5, just a few chapters back, he says there, in verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of God or excuse me, the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also, and this is the important part I want to highlight here, we also glory in tribulations, knowing, this is something we need to remember, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And then he goes on in verse 5, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope. So how do I find myself becoming more hopeful? The Lord allows more junk in my life that is a tribulation or a trial. And what I find out is that my hope was in something that could perish rather than something that can't be moved. We sung that song this morning. Those who trust in the Lord will not be moved. Have you been moved in the trials you're going through? If you have, recognize that your hope's not in Christ. It's in something that can be moved, something that can be shaken. And praise the Lord that the Lord allowed something in your life to yank on you a little bit so you could recognize, hey, I'm tied to something that, cannot be, moved, that can be moved. I need to anchor myself to Christ, who cannot be moved. We need to hold fast, Hebrews says, Hold fast to the anchor of Christ so that when all things are shaken, when the winds blow and the waves crash, our foundation will be found to be what it is. And then we can cling to it. Or let go and cling to the thing that can't be moved. And so back in Romans chapter 15, I find it interesting. He says, verse 4, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Many Christians struggle with this. Why do we study the Old Testament We're in the New Testament. The Old Testament just means the Old Covenant, the Old Promise. But we're in the New Promise. We've got Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of it. We don't need to read that other stuff. And what it says here in in Romans 15, verse 4, is these things that were written were written for our learning. We are to take hold of and read those stories and say, Lord, what am I supposed to learn from this? And as we do that, we, through patience and comfort of the Scripture, might have hope. So when you and I are called to love those that aren't lovable, when you and I are called to bear with those who are weak, it's going to be a trial. It's going to be hard. Because to bear with people we know, we've already gone over that, is hard. Because we know them so well, 
that we don't think they'll ever change. But the Lord wants to show us, I don't want you to share your opinion with them. I want you to pray for them. I want you to speak to them if I lead you. But I don't want you to speak out of your own wisdom. I want you to speak out of the patience and the comfort of the scriptures. Because what we find is when we're investing in other people, we come to the end of our own wisdom realizing it was pointless and it doesn't help. But the word of God remains forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will remain forever. And it goes forth and it does exactly what he wants it to do. He wants it to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And as he does that, what we'll find out is that the patience and the comfort of the scripture will meet us right where we're at, whether we're in the Old Testament or in the New. He'll instruct us in what that person needs to hear or have prayed for them. And what you'll find is that you'll learn to trust in the Lord more as you seek to help them, seek to bear with them. So their being weak causes you to try to help. And as a result, they're strengthened and you're strengthened. God's not just interested in impacting other people, but he has to impact us first in order to reach other people. And so he wants to build us up as well. And I love that because the Lord never calls us to do anything that he's not going to bring us through and teach us to do. Verse 5, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this bearing with one another, what it does is it causes there to be more and more unity in the body of Christ. Recognizing each other's weaknesses, being our brother's keeper. I heard somebody say one time, I'm not my brother's keeper. That's not what God's called me to do. Wrong. We're to look out for one another. We all have weaknesses. And if we'll approach each other in meekness and humility, what you'll find is the person that you helped at one point will then one day probably be somebody that's strengthened in order to help you. Each block pushing against one another, holding up the whole building. And so, Paul says here, I want you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ. Not according to your own opinions, not according to your own weaknesses or their weaknesses, but according to Christ, loving them like Christ does. And I love this because sometimes God calls us to bear with them and sometimes he calls us to leave a little challenge to them, to stretch them. And I know this because there were a couple of times in Jesus' ministry where he was approached and he didn't back down. And there were other times where he backed down, he said, you know what, let's make a concession so we don't offend. So turn to Matthew chapter 12. There was a group that approached Jesus and had a weakness called the Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 9, now recognize this is a group that had given much trouble to Jesus. He had no reason, in my mind, to even speak to them. He could have just remained silent, but he didn't. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 9, when he had departed from there, he went into the synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? They were trying to find some way to trap him. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. 
And the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him how they might destroy Jesus. So in this case, they approached him and says, said to him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, I don't know that any of them have a recording in the scripture of ever healing anybody, number one. Number two, Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are hypocrites. You say that if you can, on the Sabbath, go and save your sheep, why not be able to save a human being? Why not be able to mend something that they've struggled with? He says, I'm going to heal. He doesn't back away. He loves this man, and so he heals his arm, and he loves them, so he's trying to show them you might have some wrong ideas about what God's intentions are for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never meant for uh, man, but man, excuse me, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, it was a day of rest, but not to the point where you couldn't take care of people and love them. (laughs) And so um, I made a couple of notes. Here's an example of Jesus' response to the Pharisees who disagreed with his observance of the Sabbath. Did Jesus cater to their wrong ideas? No. Did he give them something to think about and challenge their thinking? Yes. Did he leave them with his real intentions for the Sabbath? Yes. Did they like what he had to say? No. Did he say it anyway? Yes. So there are times where we die on that hill. And there are times where we back away. Turn to Matthew chapter 17, just a couple chapters over. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. It says, When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax, there was a tax they had to pay towards the temple, they came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Is he not paying taxes? What's his deal? And so... He said, yes. Now, I don't think that Peter actually knew whether or not Jesus paid taxes. I think he said yes because he was a little defensive. He was trying to stick up for Jesus. And so then he went to Jesus, and when, it, when he came into the house, Jesus anticipated him asking, or him saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to him, well, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, you know, Jesus doesn't have to pay temple tax. That tax goes towards the building. That's Jesus' building, technically. He's the son of God. So he has no reason to pay taxes. He says, nevertheless, verse 27, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Now, oftentimes we read that, we get real focused on the miracle. But what Jesus is showing Peter is that, hey, sometimes, so we don't offend a group or a group of people, uh, what we do is we make concession. He's not compromising. He's just saying, hey, I'm the son of God. I don't have to pay taxes, but we're going to right now. He says, Peter, I'm going to use you and something you normally do to get money to pay taxes. Now, at the moment, they didn't have time for Peter to go sell the fish at the market. That wasn't the point. He says, why don't you just go catch a fish, take the money out of its mouth, pay the taxes, so we don't offend this group. And I love that, because even Jesus, he knew what would offend people, and he had a line that he would not cross. There are times where he was very brash with the Pharisees. Sometimes he was like, hey, you guys are fools. You know, you guys are twice the sons of the devil than anyone else. 
You think you're right and you're not. But there are also times where Jesus said, hey, let's not offend in this thing. This isn't worth dying on that hill. And uh, Jesus loves us so much, you know. He loves us enough to, to lay aside things sometimes. So in verse 9 through 12, back in Romans 15, basically, uh, well, we're in verse 17, so I won't skip ahead. He's talking about unity. He's talking about building one another up through bearing with one another. And then in verse 7, he says, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ received us to the glory of God. Now, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and, this is a big and, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, in verse 7, he says, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, how did Christ receive us? Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that while we were yet sinning against him, while we were still in enmity or at war against God, that's when Christ came and gave his all for us. So how are we ought to, to receive one another? I was thinking about that because I couldn't think of an instance and I couldn't think of anything on my own. And uh, I don't mean this to, to be crude, but I was in the shower and the Lord taught me. So God can speak to you anytime. And I was thinking about it this morning and the, and the Lord was showing me, he said, sometimes what we do is we bear with one another or sometimes God gives us the opportunity to correct one another. Now, sometimes we don't like to receive anything from one another, and sometimes we do. I mean, it goes different ways. Um, Jesus corrected people, and they basically wanted to kill him. And then he also corrected some people, and they received it, and they were blessed. Think about the woman caught in adultery. He corrected her. They brought this woman to him, the Pharisees did, and they said, hey, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, number one, they didn't bring the man and the woman. They were in the act. There should have been two of them. Uh, but look at the, the mercy of God. Jesus looked at her and he said, you know, uh, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he wrote, and I believe he was right. It doesn't matter what he's writing, but I, just a devotional thought. I think he was writing down the Ten Commandments. I think he was writing down all the things that they struggled with. I don't think he had to get specific. He had the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's writing murder. Covetousness, you know, love the Lord your God supremely. Yeah. So as he did that, they all left. But the cool thing is, is as she was the only one standing there, he looked at her and he said, where are your accusers? And she said, well, they all left. He goes, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And she said, thank you. He didn't say, hey, you got to do this, this, and this, and get right and make sacrifices. He says, Go and sin no more. You're forgiven. And so in the same way, there was an opportunity in the church in 1 Corinthians. And I won't go to the passage. I'll just tell the story. But in 1 Corinthians, there was a man who had slept with his father's wife. Now, this wasn't his mom. This was incest, but not in the case of bloodline. It was just, it was his father's wife, his father's new wife. And he was living with her. And the church, they were like, man, look how mature we are. We accept people in. We love them as they are. And Paul basically wrote in 1 Corinthians, that guy is in sin. And you guys allowing him to come in and think he's in the fellowship with God, he needs to know that his sin separates him from fellowship with God. And so you guys practically, you need to send him out of the church and tell him he needs to repent. He dealt very 
brashly with them because he needed to know that this is not okay and the church needs to know that. So be an example. Judge. Make a judgment so that the heart is that he come back. Well, here's what happened. Time went on. He was sent out of the church, but he repented and the church wouldn't let him back in. They were like, you know what you've done? Get out of here. And Paul's heart and Jesus' heart is never that. He says, once... So in 2 Corinthians, when he was writing to him again, he said, hey, I heard that so-and-so that was in sin, you sent him out, good job. But he's repented. Don't exasperate him, let him back. He recognizes that his sins separate him from God, but he's repented, he's changed his ways. Bring him back and receive him. Receive him. He's forgiven by me. You guys need to show him practically and in relationship one-on-one that you forgive him because I have. And that's the way we get to experience the love of God is when we experience that in a very one-on-one thing. My forgiving someone doesn't actually mean they're forgiven. But if God's forgiven them and then I'm not able to express that same heart, the beauty of that is that they, they feel that love. Jesus with some skin on it. You know, I know that I've been forgiven when I sin against my wife, when I speak harshly or where I do something. But when she tells me, hey, I forgive you, I'm like, wow, that's real. I've experienced the love of God through my wife. She's become his vessel to deliver his grace and mercy. And so we, in the same way, receive one another. Don't hold it against him. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And so uh, he's teaching us that here. Now, verse 8, he says, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that means the Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises that God made to the fathers. So God, through Jesus, was confirming all the promises that he made for their future. And, verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. And if you want to on your own time, I want you to look at these passages and see how God was reaching out to the Gentiles and his heart was always to reach to the Gentiles through the nation of Israel, but they made it all about them. And so God, through the pen of Paul here, reminds us that this wasn't like plan B. Okay, Israel rejected me, so now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. No, his heart was that the Jews would understand how much God loved them, how much he provided a savior, and then through them, it would be a blessing to the nations. So he quotes there in verse 9, he says, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. He's quoting there from 2 Samuel and from Psalm 18. And then in verse 10, he says, And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. In other words, come into the fold. God calling out to the nations. And then in verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Adore him. Verse 11 is uh, speaking from Psalm 117. And verse 10 was Deuteronomy 32. And then in chapter 5, excuse me, in verse 12, he says it again. Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. Now remember, Jesse is the dad of David, son of Jesse, David. And from the line of David comes the Messiah all the way through the generations. There shall be a root of Jesse and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall find hope. And so all of these scriptures pointing to what God was getting ready to do through the Messiah, 
through the nation to reach the Gentiles. Now, just because the Jews rejected Jesus, many of them, most of them, doesn't mean that God can't continue his work. Nobody can stand in the way of God and stop him from fulfilling his purposes. So he's saying there, he sums it up in verse 13. He says, Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, if you will bear with one another, if you will receive one another once they've been forgiven, the beauty is, is you'll have had to draw from the well of God's word in order to do it. You can't do it on your own. And because you've been drawing from that well of the scriptures, you will have patience and peace and joy and hope. And you'll, number two, time I've said this, you'll recognize how much more Jesus loved you than you first realized. How much he's bared with you or bore with you. How much he's been willing to receive you when you weren't really receivable or, or lovable. And the cool thing is, is as you do that, and as God works out through you and uses you to love other people that aren't lovable, you may the God of hope, he says, fill you with all joy and peace and believing. It will be a direct result. He'll fill you with peace and hope as you believe in him, and you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love this because abound there means to, and I looked up the Greek word, and I looked at the definition because once again I couldn't pronounce it, but the Greek definition, the simple one, was to abound, but the, ver- the tense was to super abound. So it was like so much more than abound. To overflow, that you would abound, that your brim would be fold over, like you don't want to do when you pour a cup of coffee in the morning. Overflowing, splashing out, that your river of life, you know, you ever sing that song? I've got a river of life flowing out of me. I've always pictured a river that's just constantly going. But it's not like that. It's like the Jordan in flood season that's over its banks. So much that the water that comes from its banks goes into the surrounding valleys. Like the Mississippi River in 93 and in the years that it's flooded, what happens to the ground that's surrounding the Mississippi River? It gets flooded. But you know what's a beautiful thing about an overflowing floodplain? Do you know why people continue to farm there anyway, even knowing there could be a, a bad year? It's the most fertile ground you will find in the world. It's why the Nile River is so fertile in the middle of the desert. It's why the Mississippi Valley, even all the way down to Arkansas and everywhere, that's the best ground, even though it's risky. And having a hope in Jesus that overflows from your life is risky because you'll feel like you're loving people that are going to stomp all over you. But the overflowing that came from Jesus Christ It was stomped all over more than you and I, most of us, will ever experience. It was killed. Jesus loved people to the death. And because of that, the love of God was shown to the world. But the beauty of it is, is when he rose from the dead, he's continued to do his work. And he wants to overflow in your and I's life. And as he does that, you'll find out that it's risky. But it's always good because your hope will be in Christ. It won't be in the response. It won't be in circumstances. It'll only be in Christ. And I'm going to close with this one last note. My wife sent me something from her devotional this week about this very verse. I'm going to read the verse again, then I'll read the notes. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the, the writer that wrote this, and I probably should have looked up who it was. 
says this, we live in a culture that's busy with activities and offers more options than we could ever have time for. We sometimes run on empty more than we run on full, much less overflowing. Yet Paul's prayer for the believers in Rome was that their souls would be so full of joy, peace, and trust that they would overflow with hope. This was to happen not by their own strength or the sheer force of their wills, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you like to overflow with hope? Would you like to be a person whose joy seems to light up every room, whose peace can be felt in even the tensest situations? Then by the power of the Holy Spirit, praise God. It's no accident that in this passage, Paul quotes from Old Testament passages about praising God, singing hymns to His name, and rejoicing. That's how we find hope in God, through praise and worship. When we connect to God and honor His presence in our lives, when we praise Him for His character and the evidences of His works in us, we have so much of Him in us that He spills over. God's gifts in us become our gifts to those around us. And that's when we overflow with the joy, peace, and hope that comes only from God. So let's pray. Father God, thank you that we can be a part of your work here on earth. Thank you that you've given us this, uh, in some ways, this, this apprenticeship, this discipleship, where you call us to love people around us, even within the body of Christ, to your glory, to receive them, to bring them back into the fold. And yet, Lord, so often, I make more of a mess of it than I help. And so, Lord, for me, I pray that you'd help me to get out of your way to put my hope in Christ, to let Him teach me to love others, to recognize how much of a lack, how poor and needy I am when it comes to doing Your will instead of mine. And Lord, help me to cling to You. For each one of us, we have a different group of people that You want to reach. And many times, Lord, I just confess that I am not reaching them because I'm thinking about me. But I thank You for our example of Jesus Christ who laid aside His own position even in heaven he came down here amongst us he bore with us he carried our infirmities our griefs our sorrows and when he carried them to the cross he allowed them to be put death to death on him and so lord as we are bearing with one another help us not to carry those burdens as if they're ours because you've already carried them help us just to represent you to love on people to correct them if you give us the opportunity but to do it in meekness and humility for your glory. Lord, help us to receive them back. Help us to walk alongside them, to be their friend, to love them when it's hard and when it's easy. Lord, help us to be you to other people and help us, Lord, to trust you that whether it's stomped on or whether it's received, that you're going to use it and that you're going to draw men to yourself, women to yourself that need you, children. Lord, thank you for the opportunities we get to meet practical needs Thank you for the opportunities that we get to just speak into people's lives. Lord, use it all. Help us not to see any of it as mundane or useless, that you're using it all for your glory. And Lord, in the meantime, we just thank you for being our God. Thank you for loving us like we've seen in this passage today, for bearing with us, for receiving us, for forgiving us of stuff that you didn't have to. Lord, you are so good. You love me so much more than I realized at the beginning of the week. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.